Welcome to My Dog Ate My Book Report, a podcast where two weirdo 30-somethings take turns introducing each other to a formative book from childhood the other has never read. I am Ren, they them, and I have extremely boring brown hair, and I think I blame this book for why I had such a complex about it. And I'm Brandon, uh, he him, and I, I also have boring brown hair, but I never really thought about it that much. I would say that you have black hair. Mm, that's what I usually would say as a kid, but I was corrected on it a number of times because it's apparently dark brown. Regardless, we both dye it, so jokes on the world. Yeah. Haha. <laughs> yeah, what would uh, Aunt Polly say about that? Wait, which one was that? I, I think that's the one that... Oh, the one that was like blonde hair is better i don't remember there was a lot of stuff about like hair superiority in this book so once upon a time in 1871 a little girl named laura and her family live in a remote wooded area of wisconsin over the span of a year the readers learn all about the lifestyle of the romanticized self-sufficient white people who pull themselves up by their bootstraps and love their guns there's also a lot of candy and cheese. Welcome to Little House in the Big Woods by Laura Ingalls Wilder. Sort of. Dun 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 dun. <laughs> Wait, I'm pretty sure she exists, though. She does. But is the book by her? Dun 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 dun. Oh, oh dear. So there's some content warning. Uh, uh, obviously, I mean, who doesn't know that there's problematic stuff in these books? But this book in particular, it's the first book in the Little House series. And I personally thought that it was going to be a little gentler. And it is. But it still has a lot of problems. So there, there's... there's at least one incredibly yikesy section um, where they use some racist language for black people. There's a couple incidents of corporal punishment, which, you know, can just be kind of upsetting. Uh, a horse gets injured. There's just there's just old-fashioned values everywhere. And just repeated gun fetishization. That, that's what I have flagged. Do you think I missed anything? No. I'm trying to think of gun fetishization. It's important, but... Maybe I'm just used to the bar. I lost count of how many times they talked about how they were so glad that they had guns. And it was just like beating us over the head with yeah, it. Yeah, I guess. For me. Much like they... So, gosh, my relationship with these books is so complicated. Um, let's start from the beginning, shall we? Yeah. So my mother had the big yellow box set of the entire Little House series. So I don't remember when I read it first, but I know I was very young and that there were books in the series that I read over and over and over again frequently. This one was not one of the ones that I reread as often because I think it didn't have as much of the stuff that like really interested me about the rest of the series in it. For example, like later on, they build a house on the bank of a river and it goes into detail about like how they built the house and like the sod roof that it has and how it's like basically hidden in the ground. That book was, I think, the one that I read the most often just because I was so fascinated by this house in the ground. This was before I'd ever read Lord of the Rings. So I was already like pre pre ready to be obsessed with the Hobbit houses at that point because of. The, uh, the Plum Creek book, I think it was the third one, maybe. I don't, I don't remember. But but yeah, I, I know I read them again in undergrad because I wrote a probably kind of embarrassing, if I went back to reread it, essay on uh, this, the technology of this time period 
which which this book only really briefly touches upon. There's a bunch of talk about like newfangled farming equipment at the end of it. But in subsequent books, there's a big to do about the advent of sewing machines and how that changes their lifestyles. And so I wrote a big essay about this time period and how technological advances were changing their lifestyles. And I thought I was like the smartest shit. So I think that was the last time I reread them, which was 15 years ago. So, so that's my perspective on, uh, on this whole thing. But, um, I, this is the first one in the series. So I thought that it, it fits to, to, to do this book as this one, because I do know that you said that you'd read one of the books in the series before. But this this is the first book in the series, and it's before they start. So right directly after this book, in the next book, they move. And they start becoming frontier lifestyle people. And as a result, I know that that book and all future books have incredibly problematic depictions of Native Americans. And I knew that this book was probably going to escape all of that stuff. So I was like, this is going to be the, the gentler little house option. Yeah, I'm not positive anymore which one it was that I read. Um, I was assigned one at some point in school. It was, in my memory, it's probably Little House on the Prairie, the one that's actually called that, right? There is one that's actually called that, right? Because although I don't really remember anything that happens in it specifically, I do remember there being more stuff about there being other people around and things uh there's you know a brief episode in this book where they go to town but i feel like that was not what i was remembering yeah they're pretty isolated in this book and i remember the fact that i was assigned that book being the reason why i knew that little house on the prairie is not the first book in the series because i thought it was Mm. weird that they had assigned us a book that was like not the first in this, which I hadn't known until I was reading it and like maybe saw in the copy I had or something, you know, like they sometimes have just inside the book, something that's like, read the Little House on the Prairie series and it like lists all of them. Yeah, I, I, I feel like obviously the series goes in chronological order because she's the youngest in this and then they move and they start being frontier people. I do find it very interesting that they, they set up this whole like perfect idealistic remote woods lifestyle and then at the very beginning of the next book they're like we run half you with this lifestyle so we moved if i remember correctly there's like too many settlers that come to this part of the forest and so they decide to move because they like being alone isolated yeah that makes sense but also i do know from doing a lot of like looking into this that because this book series was aimed towards younger readers they definitely glommed over important adult things and negative negative stuff well i was expecting with the meta knowledge of it being just the first book in a series um and and that i knew the series involved at some point moving at least one i was expecting this book to be kind of the inciting incident for that and to for this book to build to now we have to move or now we're going to move and that being kind of like the thrust of this book's arc which it isn't it it ends no super abruptly this this book is really just a year in the life of this little family and it's all perfect and wonderful yeah (laughs) it's it's very standalone so there's the mother and the father and they have three daughters and they live in a tiny log cabin in a very isolated wooded section of wisconsin it's like super western wisconsin i pulled up a a map yeah it's actually pretty close to you (laughs) yeah that that i did note it because they eventually the town they go to um pepin yes is right on the border it's a little bit south of i'm in the twin cities for anybody who is unclear i live in saint paul um which is not very far from the border between Minnesota and Wisconsin. So Pepin is a little ways south of me, but in the grand scheme of things, not very far. I've never been there, though. But yeah, they make a big to-do about, like, having to hitch up the wagon and take, you know, many, many, many hours to get to the nearest town, which in itself seems like a pretty small town. 
there's like one store and a bunch of houses and they're all like it's so big yeah. and scary and i'm like sitting here in my apartment in boston like <laughs> oh weird um yeah i but uh laura is the middle child her older sister is mary her little sister is barely mentioned whose name is uh carrie um she's just kind of a a, a, a lump of baby that doesn't interact with the world much at this point because she can't talk or do anything so she's irrelevant for the most part um but laura is kind of like a i i'm also basing this assessment on future books but she's a, a slightly feistier girl who doesn't really want to be quiet and behave and wants to run around barefoot and uh, i remember as a kid really glomming on to like her thoughts on why do I have to behave? Why do I have to just sit still and quiet on Sunday? Like, why Why am I treated like this? Um, and I do remember just really not liking the way that this society treated children. Yeah. And being just so thankful that my parents were not like that. <laughs> but as, as people who maybe have listened to other episodes of this podcast will probably say, oh, yes, this makes sense. The stuff that I really glommed onto was, you know, how they preserved food <laughs> and, and that sort of thing like because there's chapters that just go into like detail about you know how they slaughter this pig and how they use all of the parts of it how they make maple sugar how they do all this other you know survival-y stuff yeah and so that was the stuff that i was just really like eating up a ton of when <laughs> when i was younger it's about food Oh, because it's because it's oh gosh. Yeah, I uh, from a historical perspective, that stuff did kind of interest me. Um, I, I wasn't sure what the book was really going to be about going in, and now that I've read it, I'm not sure what it's about. Still, <laughs> but yes. it it feels to me, if I had to describe what this book is, it feels to me, it's a historical textbook that's given a narrative gloss to make it easier to get children's to read it children's to, to make it easier to get children <laughs> no, to read it we're leaving yeah. it in no we're leave leaving it in, it in. Uh, because for, the, for the, them children because if you give a, a, a children a book and <laughs> and it's a book that's like how to make butter how to make maple syrup how to reap your your wheat crop and stuff how how to make fun of a small boy for getting stung by hundreds yeah, of bees yeah um how to do all of these other things how to sew some stuff how to do other manual labor that you might need to do if you live in like the mid to late 19th century in the woods then they're gonna be like i don't want to read all of this stuff but if you give them a book and it's like Laura was there, and she liked um, Summer, and then, and then at that point, you just add the rest of the chapter, which is about Pa doing the thing, and then you've taught them, you've taught the children. Well, the thing is, you haven't really taught them, because none of it actually gave you enough instructional material to do any of the things that it's talking about. You set the children up to fail miserably when they grow up and inevitably believe they know what they're doing. <laughs> and so they go to live That's... in a cabin in the woods by themselves. They fail catastrophically. Fair. One thing that I think that I had never noticed before when I read this book was the clove apple thing. I set the book down after the part where the mother got a clove apple for Christmas from her sister-in-law. And Laura was all like, yeah, this apple is going to keep forever because of the cloves. And I'm like, what? The cloves do that? So I had to go Google, like, clove apple preservation. And that sent me on this whole, like, food preservation uh, Wikipedia dive, which was incredibly fascinating. Nothing to do with the book, really, ultimately. But yeah, people used to just get apples and stab cloves in them just like like a clove pincushion and it wasn't to preserve it to eat it it was to preserve it for the smell it was like potpourri they would they would hang it and it would just like 
smell up your place with clove and apple smell for years. Yeah, that was one of the things that I didn't really have any context for what they were talking about. And I did spend a little time in the book trying to just through context clues determine if it was for eating or for smelling. And I ultimately was pretty sure it was for smelling, it seemed. Which makes more sense. Yeah, after after um, I had already done that Wikipedia dive, several chapters later, they revisit the idea of the clove apple being something that is used for making her grandmother's sewing room smell better. And I was like, ha, there was that point. So that was a neat little fact what I learned. Uh, I There were actually two things that I hadn't noticed in previous readings. There was the clove apple thing, and there was the incredibly problematic song about a black man on page 99. Hmm. Yeah. Um, in previous readings of this book, I had not actually known that that term was for a human. Mm. Ah, yes. So this time I read it and I was like, oh, crap. That's... Ooh. Yeah, when I got there, I I did pause for a moment to think about when I read whichever one of them I did read, and I'm not positive when it was, but I think it was like, I want to say it was maybe sixth grade. It might have been earlier than that. I really don't know. It didn't stick in my brain, obviously, but I tried to figure if like late late elementary school slash early middle school me would have understood that that was a racially charged song. And, and ultimately, I'm not sure. I recognize it for what it is now, certainly. Yeah, I I was incredibly sheltered, which has come up in this podcast before. And so I just didn't know a lot of this stuff. So I didn't know that part of the book was here. I did know, like I said, that later books have incredibly problematic depictions of Native Americans. And later books have uh, some minstrel shows and things like that. So I, w I was very aware mm. that the later books just get bad. Yeah. But, but like I said, I, th I had thought that this one was the, like, she's only five. Like, this one's just the gentle book. Yeah. And that section really is kind of blink if you miss it is just one song, but it's still not good. Yeah, and, and, um, and this this book definitely like this book has what we've seen in some other books that we've read the, the situation where there are no people of color in this book. Right. Um, so so I guess like you know maybe maybe that's for the best under these under the circumstances, uh, yeah. given given the later part of the series. But yeah. It's only it's only in there that little bit, but definitely hints at what is to come. The, the the only section of the book that even comes close to mentioning anything that even remotely pertains to racial relations or anything is that Laura's uncle was a soldier in the Civil War, but um, right, uh, and is like very proud to be wearing his uniform around the house. But they were obviously you know on the north side, so but there there's no mention of anything about the war or what the war was about or any of that stuff so the war was still clearly like a presence that had happened yeah well and wasn't there a point where i don't remember exactly what the context was but i want to say either pa talked about as a kid or maybe pa talked about his brother as a kid like you know fantasizing about fighting in the oh my gosh yeah. you're right it, it, i forgot about it was that. An offhand he didn't call it cowboys and indians but it kind of felt like that sort of thing where it was just this this brief like mention of the the now adult characters had had grown up with that trope yeah so so peppered in this whole book are incidents where the father character gathers his daughter and tells them stories of his childhood or his dad's childhood or just yeah a number of these like tales or just what he had done that day yeah and most of them, or a number of them have sort of like, and this is why you must behave, sort of like parable nature to them. And this is why you must always have your gun with you. This is why you don't do this, because then you get whipped. Uh, yeah, this this book, there's, there's the uh, Frontiersy textbook bits, and then there's the, like, weird little anthology of pause stories 
bits. And then there's the as many songs as Lord of the Rings bits. Uh, so one of the things in this podcast that the person who has read the book before usually asks the person who has never read it before is, do you think you would have enjoyed it if you read it as a kid? And I'm not going to ask you that because I know the answer is no. I chose this book specifically because of some things that I learned very recently. Uh, thank you, NPR. About the writing of this book and the purpose of it that really just like opened my eyes super wide to what this whole book series is about why i just feel incredibly bad and even more sheltered and just stupid uh for how much i loved the books growing I'm up eager to hear uh because minor anecdote i mean you're right i wouldn't have liked it when i was a kid uh, not for that reason, of course. I would have just thought it was boring. But um... well, usually I try to do things that I, I think that like, oh, like Brandon might actually enjoy this if I show this to him. This one was not a. I don't think we're going to enjoy this. This one was. I want to go back and reread this based on what I know. Yeah, now. that's theoretically part of our part of our purview, I guess. But um, I mentioned that I was reading this book <laughs> to uh, a friend, and oh no, <laughs> and she was like. Oh yeah, I had, I had the whole box set when I was younger, and that's how I know that I'm vulnerable to propaganda. And I was like, I don't, I don't fully understand this comment, but I'm now fascinated to know more. Oh, she didn't uh, elaborate. No, it was just in a group text we have. So like, mm. you know, deep deep conversation was not necessarily the the context, and also. Um, I mentioned that we were reading it for the podcast and so I think she's aware enough of our format maybe that mm. she didn't want to like to tamper so I don't want to hang it all over your head too long because we can continue talking about it I think more with the lens that I'm about to give you because this is the whole reason I wanted to read it the whole reason I wanted to read it so yeah That'd be great, because frankly, I don't have much else to say about the book so far. So I, I wrote in my uh, little outline here that this is, is a sort of like isolationist self-sufficiency fable uh, and that it's, uh, it's once upon a time for white libertarians, which is the takeaway that I took from it uh, with this re with, after this reread, uh, based on what I know what I know now. So the, the Little House in the Prairie books were written with an asterisk. Asterisk? How do you say, can you please tell me how you say that word? Asterisk? Asterisk. Asterisk? Asterisk. 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 Yep. Okay. Well, so the Little House in the Blah 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 series uh, began in 1932 uh, was written by Laura Ingalls Wilder with an asterisk and comprised of 8.5 sort of uh, books nine technically it's all very complicated it's a, it's a complicated publishing history here the entire Little House Everything was written based on main character and author's journals and diaries from her life growing up, starting in Wisconsin, and I, th I feel like ending in Missouri. There was a lot of time in the Dakotas. There's just a lot of like frontier exploration stuff that happens. But ultimately, it came out much more recently the books were actually really written by her daughter. And I don't know how much you know about libertarianism. A bit. Uh, but there's a, there's, there are three women that are credited as being the mothers of libertarianism. One of whom is Rose Wilder Lane, which is Laura Ingold, Ingalls Wilder's daughter, who convinced her mother to write these books. And so her mother started writing these books and then they went through a lengthy editing and rewriting process 
by the daughter who I'm trying to find the name of the organization. Um, okay, I can't find the name of the organization, but regardless. So Rose, Rose Wilder, Laura Ingalls Wilder's daughter, along with uh, Ayn Rand and Isabel Patterson are known as the Mothers of Libertarianism. And the entire Little House series is a giant propaganda piece to propose the merits of, you know, independent exceptionalism and how things just go badly if the government interferes with people. They actually published this, the first book in the series, uh, apparently as a response to uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt being elected and they, they opposed very strongly to everything about the New Deal and everything that he was doing. And so basically the books all coincide with putting forth ideals that directly oppose, at the time, uh, Roosevelt's policies and values. Uh, and they were incredibly popular <laughs> because... They just, like, put forth this fantasy world where if you are just, like, a hardworking, self-sufficient, responsible person, then you can just live this, like, free and independent and really happy lifestyle without the government coming and giving you handouts and interfering with everything. And in future books, like, the government is kind of the bad guy. They, the, they get screwed over by the government in a bunch of situations where, like, they, if I remember correctly, there's one where they go and they settle on some land based on some government promise. You know, if you settle somewhere and you build it up for long enough, then then the land is yours. Right, homesteading. Yes, but then the government, like, comes in and says, screw you, and kicks them all out, and they have to move on again. Um, and I just never noticed any of this stuff reading it as a child. As a result... Everything bad is really, like, glommed over in these books. Apparently during the time period that Little House in the Big Woods happened, the mother had a baby and it died just because they were constantly, like, really poor, always really struggling. They move around a lot because they just aren't able to be self-sufficient and they're constantly, like, seeking out, like, a better life for themselves and failing at it. And, um... Apparently, Laura Ingalls was going just, like, completely broke because their farm failed for, like, the umpteenth time. And these books are the only thing that actually, like, pulled her out of complete poverty. Um, so they are just... they're a lie. I, I took a couple of, like, really interesting quotes. Um, um, and I will... Uh, I'll credit uh, these people in the show notes, but um, one of the articles that I read about it was uh, talking about how um, Little House and Walden are both like these fictional pieces of uh, bullshit that put forth that put forth this life of like independent isolation that are just all fake. And they write, um, the second thing Little House shares with Walden is that it's all bullshit. Thoreau went home to his mommy when he wanted cookies, and Laura's real-life family were substance farmers always one bad season away from starving to death. Another really interesting thing about uh, Rose Wilder is that she routinely advocated for the assassination of FDR. How, this is how much she and her libertarian like cronies hated this guy. And she repeatedly threatened in writing that she was going to go do it herself. C cool. So the whole story of this is just, like, this woman forcing her mother to write a book and then her, like, super editing it so that she can continue selling this fairy tale life of libertarianism. And so I, I heard this story on NPR and I just desperately wanted to go back and reread them just based on this whole light. And I, I am just fascinated by this. But like your friend, I heard that and I was just like, wow, yeah. I'm incredibly gullible. I'm incredibly susceptible to propaganda. I mean, children usually are, to, to be fair. That is fair. Like, I, 
I read a lot of stuff, and we've talked about some of this um, as we've done uh, some of the books I've picked. There's always messages that you can take from the things you're reading, and when you encounter those things as a kid, you don't always actually understand that. If if we take, say, Starship Troopers as an example, there was definitely a time when I read Starship Troopers and bought into Heinlein's argument more than I do now because I just didn't really have the uh, tools to see some of the flaws in it, right? Um, and I was older than I, I think it sounds like you were than when you encountered this book. So everybody is kind of gullible as a kid. It's just a matter of what stuff you end up exposed to. Yeah, so, so I knew all of that. I reread this book and I was like, but you know what? I liked reading these books a lot. But I loved the TV show, and the TV show was fine. The TV show was actually, like, full of a bunch of really good morals and things and did have some more, a little bit, a tiny bit more diversity and and some good stuff. And so the, the, the show couldn't have been bad, right? The show the show was fine. I, I didn't mention that, yes, there's, there was a show. Um, yeah. It ran from 1974 to 1983. And I watched it a lot as a child. Uh, unfortunately. <sighs> I was very aware. <laughs> I have bad taste. I mean, it ran for nine seasons. I thought, well, okay, no, that doesn't mean anything. So the people that made the show, it happened because of an individual named Roger Lee McBride, who was a libertarian presidential candidate. And um, so he he get, he arranged for the rights of the books um, to be able to be made into the TV show to further this whole libertarian propaganda machine. And I read that and I was just like, come on! Come on! God damn it! I was very aware of the show when I was a kid, but I tried desperately to never have to watch it because like, just seeing ads bored me a lot. I thought the show was, was great. I, I thought it was very funny. I have to this day never seen, I think, any of it functionally. But as a kid, and I'm talking young, basically live action just looked boring to me. Mm, that's fair. Unless it had obvious sci-fi elements in it. The thing that looked especially boring to me was anything that had sort of a, uh, like, old west or, or, or agricultural vibe or whatever. So just seeing seeing little bits that i saw i was like oh log cabin oh gross no <laughs> i'm trying to remember i i think my mom might have sometimes watched some of it which may have been why i was aware of it but i don't recall so the tv show what i think it does is i think that it takes the setting of like the next book and mushes it in with this book because like this is the house I think they live in in the TV series but they don't move they just stay there and they live in this nice little town and there isn't a prairie I don't know <laughs> like if they live in the woods near a town and it's all about like the funny antics of the ridiculous people that live in the town and they really like played a played up a ton more how Laura Ingalls was this sort of like rebellious tomboy character and so I really liked that a lot as a rebellious tomboy child <laughs> so 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 that spoke to me and I learned a lot of like really cheeky tips for getting back at your enemies like there was a an episode where there was this girl who was bullying Laura and she's supposed to be like sewing her a dress and so she like sews it using a stitch that can come apart really easily so when this really like mean bully girl is actually out wearing the fancy dress it comes apart and it's all embarrassing and I thought that was great um and I remember these things very <laughs> vividly <laughs> but um the values that the book is promoting would never have allowed for the things that happened in the series to happen because the values in this book are very much like be a quiet child. Don't do anything wrong or else your father will beat you. I had forgotten how much corporal punishment was in these books. And I, I was 
slightly shocked. But yes, now, knowing knowing that it's a propaganda piece, do you have anything else to say? I mean, that sounds super interesting. <laughs> I, I did not know all of that element of background. Uh, I, my, my knowledge of these books began and ended at their semi-autobiographical, but that's about all I knew. Yeah, wow. I, even knowing that but yeah, like I, I totally like see see it now that when I'm reading it because like and, and the whole how many times he mentions like how how important it is that they have their gun to protect themselves. Uh, I'm just like, yeah, yeah, I see it. Yeah. OK. Yeah. I, I don't know. Like I didn't, I didn't necessarily get those vibes at the time, um, though I, I definitely imagine they're much uh, more pronounced in the later books. Because there's so little, like, strife in this book. Because, like, the times that the gun is brought up as being a good thing, it's always in relation to bears and panthers. Um, you know, dangerous wild animals. So that, And that's part of why I was, like... That's probably why I didn't find the role of guns to be something that, get, like, raised a red flag for me in terms of having an agenda, because it kind of tracked to me that like if you live in a place where you might just meet a bear sometimes then having a gun probably is kind of important and there was never a time where they were talking about gotta have a gun in case like you know native americans come or something it was never as far as i remember it talked about in in the sense of like using it against other humans and likewise like i kind of expected as i was reading the book as I said earlier, I kind of expected to eventually get a point where it kind of turns into a story instead of like an account of how life was. And when I got to the point where they have the Thresher visit, the Thresher machine, mm-hmm. I was like, oh, here it is. The way that this is going to happen is we've <laughs> spent this whole book talking about how they live and now here's some modernization that's going to show up and maybe maybe laura will be impressed because like the chapter name is like the wonderful machine or something so even even when it arrives you're like well okay the book has primed me to expect that at least laura as our protagonist is probably going to find it kind of incredible or neat but i was like okay this machine is going to come in it's going to do a lot of this stuff real fast laura's going to be like wow that's that's really cool. I've never seen a machine. And Pa's going to be like, well, that machine is bad or something. And, and tell her why like modernization is a threat to their livelihood or, or, or how modernization is going to make the way that they live uh, worse, right? But that's not what happens. Pa's like, the machine's pretty great. We're always going to use the machine. And then like the next chapter is the end of the book. So yeah, like it, it's interesting to think about in that context. Cause I don't think, I don't think I, I, even now I can't think of that many times in this book that I felt like the depiction of things tipped to where I would necessarily call it propaganda. It's very good, but yeah. I mean, at, at what it's Yeah, doing. so I don't know if that's because it's working or or not. I definitely 100% believe that the other books, because they start dealing more with, like, the people around the family and how they relate to the government and stuff, fully believe that those probably ring propaganda way louder. I guess this one, maybe it's, it's more... Maybe it's not about um, depicting other things as bad because there's not like a time where they talk about how the government is bad for example like you mentioned some other books do it this one just like doesn't no this one just sets up this idealistic life yeah it just doesn't acknowledge the parts of this life that are bad but also important to note this book depicts laura as being five in reality in this time period laura was three Mm -hmm. and so they're just making up this stuff out of I see. Their imagination of how wonderful the life must have been. 
Right. So, like, how much could she possibly have even really remembered? Like, how yeah. much of this could even plausibly be called biographical? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and I mean, obviously, this book does does put forth a set of of morals about uh, specifically about minding your parents and stuff which is old-fashioned so that element i'm like okay uh, those things i was actually like i don't i don't agree with what this book is trying to sell me um but i guess i kind of just read that as not to excuse it but different time right i feel like they really just like told this lovely little story of how nice this life was that just can't be real Especially based on, like, how much I know these people must have, like, actually been starving. Yeah, there was never really any hard times for the family. Um, They just kind of were already established. You know, the book begins when they've lived there for some amount of time. So there's not a part where they have to, like, build the house or set up their livestock or crops or whatever from scratch like all of that stuff is already done and pa just goes and does it every day yeah i think that's why some of the some of the further books are more fascinating were were more fascinating to yeah. me because they do talk about building houses and planting crops and and there are hardships that are depicted in future books yeah. like crop failings and things like that which i just found really interesting yeah. this one there was a lot of food in this one. I remember the the pig butchering scene as just being like more like the biggest thing that I remembered because it was the first time I ever encountered the concept of head cheese and how much of the pig that they used and the log they make to smoke everything. And I just remember thinking all of that stuff was just endlessly fascinating. But how do you survive without refrigeration? So, yeah, it does present a lot of like solutions to problems, um, in that it talks but about I, what Pa does to stave off things like uh, spoilage or to make sure that the house stays warm in the winter. But they don't actually face those problems. Basically, so like realizing what the intent was behind this book when I when I read it this time, all I could think about was. I really feel like this sort of lifestyle, this like we are white and self-sufficient in the woods with our gun is like, it feels very MAGA to me in terms of like, this is what they want to go back to. They want to go back to like people being docile and like women's place in the kitchen and children are seen and not heard. And I was like, this, this is what conservative people want. And it does a very good job of making it seem like it's viable and appealing and happy. Yeah. If you take this as an accurate depiction of things, then yeah, that sounds like just a thing you could probably go do and be fine. So definitely in that context, it can, it can do that. I guess maybe, maybe I am. I don't know. I think I just read this like really cynically this time and I'm just vaguely grumpy. <laughs> no, I mean, I think that's fair. I think reading things that way, especially in light of the way that just our lives have changed since we read them, um, both because of our increased understanding of the world around us or changing opinions on the world around us, and also because the world around us has changed. This is definitely a, a thing that's fair to look at cynically. I... I don't know. I never, I was never taken by this kind of thing because everything that it talks about being all nice and stuff just sounds like agony to me. I'm like living in like a one room house with my family and nobody else around. Oh my God. No. Doing, doing nothing but like securing food every day. No, uh, uh-uh. no. Or, or in the case of, of the girls, just, just having to like sew all day with your mom and and even if you don't have to sew all day with your mom today all you've got to play with is a, one doll that it all just sounds hey hey she had a doll 
She also had a corn cob. Okay. Yeah. Wrapped in a shirt yeah. to be another doll. You're, you're correct. I was I. I reduced her plaything havingness by fifty percent, which was unfair of me. <laughs> but all of it sounds sounded as a kid and sounds still to me just like no thanks i'll just die (laughs) so my discussion question that i had in my brain was um if you had to live in a cabin by yourself somewhere where would that be but i feel like now the answer is no turn that cabin into a coffin because you'd rather be dead well i don't know can i can the cabin be like next to a library or something no you're isolated does it have wi-fi no. Oh. Yeah, I don't know. I, 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 it's. Mm, don't know if it's going to matter all that much. I guess probably somewhere cool at least, because I don't like the heat. Yeah, but is it so cool that you have to like spend your time gathering wood for when it's cold? I mean, you gotta do something, right? There's no Wi-Fi and, and it's not next to a library, so. It doesn't mean you can't own books. I like they don't talk about it, but they might have books. Who knows? I think the mother might have some books. No, they do yeah, mention there are some books that the father the father has. Well, no, they have a Bible and the father has like a nature book about animals. Oh right, yeah, they have they have a guide. Yeah, sorry, I also neglected the presence of the Bible in things that we could do, um, but I don't think that changes my assessment. I, if I found myself living in an isolated cabin with like nothing to do but play with a doll, a corn cob, and a Bible, um, I might read the Bible <laughs> once. Because I've never just read the Bible. So I'd probably read it once. And then I would let insanity take me. <laughs> I I feel like we've neglected to like really talk a ton about the plot of this book. but There isn't one. Again, there isn't really a plot. It's just a bunch of little vignettes about churning butter and how boring life is on Sunday and how... The best thing that happens to them is when they get to go pick out fabric to make new dresses. Yeah, there, there's no inciting incident for any sort of series of events that resolve. There's no real change in characters other than just Laura getting older. Um, we have brief glimpses of the way that Laura is different from her sister um, in that more rough and tumble sort of way and the fact that like she slaps mary at one point and stuff like that i thought that was yeah. great and then it was very quickly followed by her getting beaten for it yeah. which i was incredibly traumatized by slightly <laughs> i was like this is awful yeah but like in the, those character moments they don't become like something that she does anything with in a character arc sort of way right she's just punished and then we don't really speak of it again so it's not clear even if laura has come to accept that part of herself as being something she needs to change you know which is obviously the book's perspective or if laura has doubled down on those you know be a less obedient but more individualistic daughter no matter what i imagine that might happen a little more as the books go on but it's not really a thing in this book it's just a couple of incidents where we get the barest sort of differentiation between Lara and Mary as characters but it doesn't amount to character arcs it's it's all just setting stuff up it it's a cute little thing honestly I think the best thing and the thing that I remember the most are the illustrations the illustrations are pretty good which uh were done by Garth Williams who illustrated Charlotte's Web, A Cricket in Times Square, a number of other things. Yeah. I've said before on this podcast that Garth Williams illustrated like 50% of my childhood. Still true. Um, he's very good. Yeah. And, and definitely um, now knowing that like this, this book was, I presume from your background information, written with the intent that it was not standalone makes a lot more sense to me now. Because I did, by the end, um, wonder, like, how... I wasn't sure what the arrangement was, but if I thought about it in a context of, like, here is a novel, and it's not necessarily a novel made to be the first of many, because uh, at the time I didn't know whether or not it was. But, like, if I assumed that this was written as a standalone novel that happened to get sequels afterward, does it make any sense 
and it kind of doesn't <laughs> because what is it about so the notion that it is a piece of a larger puzzle that it sounds like was the intention from the beginning makes it make a lot more sense to me i the edition that i had and the one that i know that i read when i was younger um were a revised edition and i immediately thought back to your um hardy boys and nancy drew revised editions and so i did a lot of attempted research into what the original version was like and i could not find anything um i don't imagine that they edited for you know making things less racist because that's still there so i don't know what they revised between 1932 and 1950 whatever when they re-released it but yeah so somewhere you can find a 1930 something edition of this which is vaguely different and i don't in i don't know in what way wish i did it, it could be t tricky i i kind of lucked out that both of the stratmeyer syndicate novels that we read i, I found two separate blogs basically where someone had taken it upon themselves to do a blog post that broke down the differences. I don't think the blogs were related to each other, as near as I could tell. It was just very serendipitous um, that they existed at all. So, yeah, it's tricky. There was no talk of moon rockets or anything, though, so I can't imagine it was to update the slang. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, guess, I guess they weren't necessarily planning for the series eventual little house on the moon <laughs> little house in the sea of tranquility so so in my like fervor to like research the libertarian stuff i did gloss over a little bit of historical stuff about laura ingalls wilder herself um she did initially try to write an autobiography called pioneer girl that was sort of like about everything uh, but it was rejected and rejected and rejected and then when she worked with her daughter, her daughter, like, rewrote them, spread them out, you know, fluffed them up, and released them, like, ostensibly for children. And that's, that's, that's how it happened. Is there anything I missed that you think we need to talk about before we move on to Peaches? If, if you ever want to read this book, or if you're just interested in reading a book that describes preparing and uh, enjoying the existence of various kinds of food. This book actually does a pretty decent job at that stuff, which is kind of hard sometimes. Um, as a person who has tried to write scenes with food in it, uh, I am not fantastic at that. And this book's actually pretty good at that. So like uh, props for that reason. But otherwise it's not going to give you a story that you get to the end and you feel like you've gone on a journey or where you feel like there's some thing that ties it up in a bow to give you a satisfying conclusion beyond just being able to mark on your uh, story graph or Goodreads that you've read a book. <laughs> So yeah, it's 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 tricky. So that being said, we give our books a rating system based out of how many of five giant peaches. Giant peaches being a reference to James and the Giant Peach, which is a book that we both really liked. We will be revisiting that book shortly. However, how many of five giant peaches would you give this book? I don't know. Like, two, maybe? I I had said two in my head, and then I went back to our rankings so far list, and I'm like, do I really want to rank this higher than Pet Cemetery? Oh. Well, I don't have that problem. So, I'm gonna... I'm gonna keep it at two, because it's not fair for me to use my past rankings against things. I mean, you... But it makes me want to retroactively go back and turn Pet Cemetery into a 2.5. <laughs> well, see, I, I, I've been reticent to rate anything 
too low because I want to leave space. Like, what did I rate the Tower Treasure? Mm, I don't the know. Of the list, my so. my ranking so far list is sparse. I, the lowest thing on my ranking so far list that you've rated something was a two for Cricket in Times Square. Oh really? Wow. For, you ranked Starship Troopers a two point five. Yeah, I forgot giving that a two. Maybe I need to make this a one point five. I don't know. Like I, I. I'm feeling one point five on this I've one. Been, myself i've been sort of nominally saving sub two peaches for books that like upset me or made me mad and this one didn't do those things if something upsets me i think it'll be a 0.5 i guess that's fair <laughs> if if i may have been thinking about one as the as the floor but maybe i think zero is the floor in which case that's probably fine i mean yeah i think 1.5 peaches it it has little bits of things that are troubling and offensive in the case of the what brief mentions there are of non-white people and in the depiction of using physical force to discipline your children but for the most part it's just dull um it's like the only thing that's bumping it to a 1.5 for me from a one or the illustrations. The illustrations are Garth good. Williams is yeah. amazing. I don't. I don't want. If I were rating the illustrations separately, they'd get a great deal more peaches. I don't blame that guy for for the content of the book, unless <laughs> he was also like a hardcore libertarian, and I just don't know it. I didn't look, and I don't want to. <laughs> That's fair. Sometimes, sometimes it's best that we just don't know. Oh no! Now I feel like I need to look up Garth Williams. Please don't be horrible. Where are you? Garth Williams. Early life, career. Oh, he was controversial for interesting reasons. All right. This is our yeah, Garth Williams sub, sub-tweet. No, that's not what it's called. Uh, Subisode. Garth Williams. Subisode. Garth Williams is neat. Night. Uh, born in 1912, died in 1996, American artist. He illustrated Stuart Little, Charlotte's Web, The Little House series, Winnie the, a number of things for uh, Winnie the Pooh. Oh no, sorry, I'm quoting that wrong. Stuart Little, Charlotte's Web, Little House. Um, he was quoted as being inspired by Winnie the Pooh and Alice in Wonderland. Um, we already know he did the Cricket in Times Square. He did a number of other things. Uh, I scroll down his Wikipedia page and there's a controversy, but it's interesting. In 1958, he wrote and illustrated a picture book that caused an uproar because it was a wedding of a white rabbit to a black rabbit. And people got mad. But uh, I don't see anything on his Wikipedia page about him being problematic or doing anything political. Nice. <laughs> He volunteered with the British Red Cross. Okay, so at a at a glance, it seems like Garth Williams was the stand-up dude. Awesome. Yay. Glad we cleared that up. Okay, well, he gets like four peaches. I've never read any of the Stuart Little stuff. I don't think I have either. So, our next episode is very exciting. It is our 20th episode and I have decided that we're going to pit two Mainers up against the Virginian. So our editor, Derek, is going to be joining us. He's also from Maine, so we outnumber you. Sorry, Brandon, not sorry. And we are going to be making you read Lost on a Mountain in Maine. And I am thrilled. Okay, but what do I have to read? You have to read Lost on a Mountain in Maine. Oh, I see. I thought you were going to make me read While Lost on a Mountain. Oh. If you want to make that happen, you got to fly here, and I'll drop you off somewhere. I'm planning to do my travel uh, plans after this recording, so I guess I can I can just stay home. <laughs> um, I remember nothing about about Lost in a Mountain in Maine except that it was something that we were forced to read in school many times, and that's about to happen. Expect an episode where we do a lot of ribbing each other about the places that we were all born that none of us now live in and strong feelings about i guess the production so far 20 freaking episodes so 
My Dog Ate My Book Report is hosted and produced by Ren and Brandon. That's us. And edited by Derek Valen and Daisy McNamara and Brandon. Sometimes. The music used in this podcast was licensed by Epidemic Sound. Transcripts were generated by otter.ai. And our icon image was illustrated by Cindy Lau. Do you have a question or comment or complaint or correction for the team? <laughs> trying to think of more C yeah. words. You can find us on our website, which links to all of our socials at dog8mybookreport.blueberry.net or by emailing at dog8mybookreport at gmail.com. We'd be really excited to know what books you loved growing up. If you read this and you have other strong feelings that we did not, you know, elaborate on anything at all. Yeah. Did, did you, um, in fact, go live in a little house in some big woods on, on your own because you were inspired by this book? How did it go? Are you still alive? <laughs> Are you well fed? <laughs> Let us know. Um, how, how did you get our podcast out in the woods? <laughs> There's no Wi-Fi. <laughs> anyway, uh, thanks for listening. <laughs>